The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John in chapter 7 and verse 7. The seventh verse in the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Now we come back to this chapter and to this portion of this chapter for the third time. We are studying it together because it is one of those sections in this gospel which gives us a study of unbelief. There is no more serious thing than unbelief. It is because men and women do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ that the world is as it is. It is failure to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that will finally damn the soul. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So I say that there is no more serious subject that a company of people like this can consider together than that of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ and unbelief. And we are considering unbelief in order that we may understand it and see its character, in order that therefore, if any of us are in that position, we may turn from it and believe. And here I say this matter is dealt with in a most extraordinary manner, because we are given a picture of unbelief under most amazing circumstances. What is dealt with in this portion, as you remember, is the unbelief of our Lord's own brethren. Now, says verse 2, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brethren, therefore, said unto him, Depart hence and go up into Judea and so on. And then in verse 5, For neither did his brethren believe in him. Here is the most poignant, the most tragic aspect of unbelief as it is depicted in the New Testament. The great tragedy according to the Gospel of John is this. He came unto his own and his own received him not. It was the Jews who crucified him, though he was their Messiah, the one that they claimed to be expecting and to whose advent they were looking forward. Yes, but even worse. Here are the members of his own family. And they didn't believe in him. Well, we've been starting on a study of this. We have noticed the characteristics, the general characteristics of unbelief, their self-confidence. They don't hesitate to criticize him. They even give him advice and tell him what, what he ought to do. They try to ridicule him. They say, why aren't you going up to this Feast of Tabernacles? We are going up. Everybody's going up. 
And we would have thought, they say, and how clever they think they are, we'd have thought that you of everybody would have rushed up because no man, they say, that desireth to be known openly doeth anything in secret. And so they poured a certain amount of ridicule upon him. And as I say, they ventured to tell him what he ought to be doing. Unbelief is still doing that sort of thing. The modern man who doesn't believe in Christ doesn't hesitate to say what he ought to have done, what Christianity ought to be doing. And they say they're not Christians because the church or Christianity or Christ hasn't done this or that. You notice the position of superiority. They are getting unto themselves of the ability to know what is needed. They stand in judgment even upon the Son of God himself. Well, we've been looking at that. What is this due to? What is the cause of this unbelief? Now that is the special message here. Because when these brothers of our Lord had finished speaking and had given him an opportunity to speak to them, he began to speak to them. And he analyzed their position. Then we read in verse 6, Then Jesus said unto them, At last, he's given a chance. Up until this point, they've done all the talking. Still remember, don't forget this in passing, that's still a characteristic of unbelief. The trouble with most people who are not Christians is that they talk too much about Christianity. They talk so much about it that they know nothing about it. They've never listened to it. Exactly like these men. Here were men doing all the talking. And it was all wrong. But at last they finished. And the Lord Jesus Christ begins to speak. Then said Jesus unto them, My time is not yet come. But your time is always ready. Now we dealt with that last Sunday. I'm simply reminding you, these are the steps and stages. The first thing you see that he lays down is this. Unbelief is always due to one thing. And that is ignorance. Ignorance. That is still the trouble with unbelief. It is sheer ignorance. What is the unbeliever ignorant of? Well, the first thing, as we saw there in verse 6 last Sunday, is this. It is completely ignorant of him. As to who he is. As to his purpose in coming into this world the whole plan of salvation and the way, the only way that it can be carried out. Oh, what an appalling ignorance. Completely ignorant of him himself, the person, my time, your time, you remember. And then the whole plan and purpose of salvation. They were ignorant of it all. So he says, that's why you don't understand me. You think I ought to be rushing up to Jerusalem now with you. I'm not going. My time hasn't come yet. My hour has not yet arrived. Your time is always here. Go up now. Hurry up. And he repeats that to them. But he says, no, no, not mine. But you don't understand this because you're regarding me as if I was just one of yourselves, just your brother, just a human being like you are. No, no, you don't know who I am and you don't know why I've come into this world and you don't know what I've come to do nor how I'm going to do it. You're all in the dark about me and my great mission. Ignorance. In that respect. But now in this verse we're looking at tonight, he goes on to show that they were not only ignorant of him and his mission, 
There is something else, and in a sense it's almost more surprising. And that is that they were completely and appallingly ignorant about themselves and about the whole of mankind. That's the second thing. These two things, of course, go together. They fit in together so perfectly. Not only were they quite wrong about him, they're utterly wrong about themselves. They think they understand this. They understand his mission, his purpose, and that's why they give their advice. He says, you're all wrong about yourselves, and you're telling me to go up and show myself to the world. You don't know the condition of the world. You don't understand the world. You're completely ignorant as to the whole state of the world in sin, the thing I've come about. They were completely ignorant about that. Now, that's the thing to which we are going to pay our attention this evening. Now, I say that these two things always go together. And these two things are of prime importance. You know what our Lord says here is as true tonight about all who are unbelievers, all who are not Christians, as it was as he, when he spoke to his brother, to his brothers nearly 2,000 years ago. If I'm speaking to somebody now as I know I am, who is not a Christian, my dear friend, the simple trouble with you is this. You're wrong about him, and you're equally wrong about yourself. You may think you're a good man. You may think you're religious. Why, you may even think you're a Christian. And yet you're in trouble about him. You're not happy about this. What's the matter with you? Well, I say your trouble is that not only are you wrong about him, but you're equally wrong about yourself, about your own position. Indeed, I say, about the whole state and condition of mankind in this world as it is, and in sin. Now then, that is what our Lord is laying down in this seventh verse as a proposition. Let's analyze it. It divides itself up, obviously, quite easily. We need make no effort at all. Here's the first thing he says. All men by nature belong to the world. <coughs> the world, he says, cannot hate you, but me it hateth. Now, here you see he is putting down a fundamental division and classification of mankind. And what he says is that uh, the whole of humanity by nature belongs to the world. Now, here is a great distinction which is made by the Bible from the very beginning to the very end. You notice that there is a great cleavage which it brings down and it divides the whole of the human race into two groups. And these are the groups. Those who belong to the world, those who belong to God. It starts away back, you see, in Genesis. Cain, Abel. And on and on it goes. Think of the other examples. Esau, Jacob, the profane person, the godly person. The nations of the world, Israel, a peculiar people for God's personal possession, all the rest, the world. And of course, when you come to the New Testament, it's still more plain and still more explicit. Of course, by now, we can put it in these terms, that the whole of humanity tonight is divided into two groups. Those who are not Christians, those who are Christians. Now, this is a tremendous principle which is, I say, emphasized 
Everywhere in the Bible. Did you notice it in that reading at the beginning from the first epistle of John, chapter 2? Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father, he said, is not in him. And you will find that he goes on saying the same thing in the fourth chapter of that first epistle. In verse 4, John puts it again quite explicitly. He says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In chapter 5, he says, we are of God. And the whole world lieth in the evil one. But it isn't confined by any means to the teaching of John. James says exactly the same thing in his epistle in chapter 4. Know ye not, he says, that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. You see, there it is every time. It's the world or God. Now then, the question that lies before us is this. What is the meaning of the world? The world, says our Lord to his brothers, cannot hate you but me, it hateth. What is this world that he's talking about? What does the Bible mean everywhere by this term? It's a most important matter for us, because as I say, the teaching is that every one of us by nature belongs to the world. Well, the world, of course, doesn't mean the physical universe. It doesn't mean the kind of thing that you look at in your maps. It isn't something you see with your naked eyes as you look at the mountains and the valleys, the rivers and the streams, and the sun and the moon and the stars. No, no, that isn't what the Bible means by the world at all. It's a spiritual term, and it carries a purely spiritual connotation. And, of course, it's made quite clear in the Bible itself as to what it means. Did you notice John's definition? It can't be improved upon. Love not the world, nor the things that are in the world. What is it? The lust of the flesh. The lust of the eye. And the pride of life. That's the world. What it means, do you see, in other words, is this. It means humanity. As humanity is organized apart from God. It is mankind in all its varied activities outside God and without the influence of God and without recognizing God. It is, if you like, man in the mass apart from God. So the term the world means the way of thinking, the world's way of thinking, the whole, if you like, of the world's outlook. Now, everybody's got an outlook. We've all got some idea of life. We've Every one of us got some sort of a philosophy of life. Now, everybody, you see, is a philosopher. Don't let the people who, are, who call themselves philosophers in inverted commas take the term from you. Every man's got a view of life. Well, every man's a philosopher, therefore. And a, a man's view of life is what pr proclaims what he is. Now then, the world means a man's view of life without God coming in at all. You know that uh, view and estimate of life, which uh, thinks of it only in terms of the animal part of our nature. Lust of the flesh, says John. Eating. Drinking, sex indulgence, 
having a supposed good time, drinking. Simply frittering away our time, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye. Living for appearance sake alone. Not thinking about the soul, not thinking about even the mind and the, what kind of an appearance to the figure we cut, the impression we gave, our clothing, our appearance, and all the time and the money and the energy that is the, the lust of the eye, mere appearances. The impression we give to others and what we see when we look at others. How do we estimate a man? Is it by his understanding? Is it by the purity of his soul? No, it's his appearance. Great personality, we say. Wonderful man, look at him. And the same with women. The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye. And the pride of life. Dear me, what a contemporary book this New Testament is. Pride of life. Pride of possessions, pride of position. Living for these things. My job, my position in my profession, or in my business, whatever it is, I'm getting on and doing better than others. Pride of life, my name, my family, my progeny, my ancestors, my ancestral home, my little house, my motor car, my this, my that. Pride of life. The world is full of it. You see it staring at you, shouting at you in your newspapers day by day. People are prepared to pay vast sums of money to get their name into a newspaper. Especially the court circular. And so on and so forth. I needn't keep you. Well, no, that's uh, what is meant by the world, you see. Uh, that is mankind thinking, mankind in its outlook, living for these things, lust of flesh, lust of eye, pride of life. God is not in all their thoughts. He doesn't come into their calculations. They sit down and make their plans. What are they going to? Which party? Which dinner? Where are they spending their holiday? How can they cut a figure? Now, I'm not exaggerating. I am simply repeating solemnly what they're doing. And you know it's true. And I'm not talking about Tom, Dick and Harry on the street corner. I'm talking about high society at its very highest as well. These are the things they live for. God is not in all their thoughts. They can be highly respectable, many of them, but God is not in all their thoughts. That is the world. Life without God and without God at all in their thoughts and in their calculations. And what our Lord is saying here, you see, is that the whole of humanity, as it is by nature, is born into that group. And every one of us in this congregation at this minute is either in the world or else in Christ. And you know, my friend, every other distinction is meaningless. It's quite irrelevant. Oh, the world divides itself up almost endlessly. There are different political parties. You see, some are socialists, some even communists, some liberal, some conservative. Endless divisions politically, endless divisions socially, intellectually, and in their interests. They say, oh, these are all important. No, says the Bible, not a bit of it. You're all one. You all belong to the world. And you know, face, coming face to face with Christ, we very soon see that our Lord is right and that they are all one. When they come face to face with him, there are men in all the political parties who hate him. 
The political outlook makes no difference. There are men in all the social classes united in hating him, some very wealthy, some very poor. There are men in rags in the gutters of London tonight who are blaspheming the name of Christ. Some of the best-dressed people in London tonight are doing exactly the same thing. All these divisions and distinctions are irrelevant. The historians are dividing themselves up into schools. There are schools of philosophy, but when it comes to Christ, they're all united. I mustn't keep you with this. There's a famous instance of this in the scriptures. We are told, you know, that just before our Lord's death, that suddenly Herod and Pilate were made friends together. Formerly they were at enmity against one another. But when they were confronted by this Christ, they became one in their opposition to him. And so, says our Lord, it's true of the whole world. Now he puts that to his brothers like this. He says, the world cannot hate you. And he means by that, you see, that the world can't hate them because they belong to the world. They are fundamentally in agreement about him and about these basic matters. The world can't hate you because you're of it. You belong to it. You've got its mind. You've got its outlook. Go up to Jerusalem. Stand up and speak. And they'll all understand you. You belong to them. The world cannot hate you. Well, you're one of it. You belong to it. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. Here in humanity there is this fell condition of sin and of unbelief. And all our much vaunted distinctions and divisions are completely irrelevant. That's the world. And we all are born into that world. We enter in with that outlook, with a bias towards evil, a bias against God. We are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. It isn't that we become that, having started as Peter Pan's. No, no. We start in sin in the world. We are all there by nature. But let me hurry to my second point. The second point our Lord makes is this. The world hates him. The world cannot hate you. But me... It hateth. Does that come as a surprise to you? Our Lord, you notice, states this quite categorically and without any qualification whatsoever. So if you believe in him at all, you've got to take his word for it. And his dogmatic pronouncement is, Me, it hateth. Now, here are the things we've got to concentrate upon, are they not? He doesn't merely say that the world disagrees with him. Doesn't that? He doesn't say that the difference between the world and himself is merely an intellectual matter. It isn't merely a way of looking at things. It isn't merely a matter of comprehension or of attempted explanation. No, no. According to our Lord, the real trouble with unbelief is not intellectual. It is always moral. Now, he's already said that earlier in this same gospel according to St. John. You'll find it in the third chapter and in the 19th verse when he said, This is the condemnation, that light is, has come into the world, 
and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. My dear friend, this is the first thing that all of us must needs understand in this matter. The problem with man in unbelief is not a matter of intellect. It's much deeper. It's in the heart. It's in the moral nature. There is this fundamental antagonism. Me, it hateth. It's nothing less, he says, than hate. Now, there are many ways in which I could prove this, but I needn't stay with it this evening. Here is a very adequate proof, it seems to me. I'm trying to show that it is not a matter of the intellect. And I do it like this. Take a man like Saul of Tarsus before his conversion. He hated Jesus Christ. And he wasn't ashamed to say so. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer and an injurious person and a persecutor. He says, very, I verily thought with myself that I should do many things contrary to the name of Jesus Christ. As a Pharisee, he hated him. And he thought he was doing God's service by blaspheming that name and by exterminating his followers who called themselves Christians. There he was with his genius, his brilliant intellect, his logical ability, his understanding, a wonderful intellect. But he's against Christ. But look at him later as the Apostle Paul. There he is now preaching the name that once he persecuted, glorying in the person that he once reviled, living to tell forth the glories of the one whom he formerly blasphemed. What's happened to him? Has he lost his intellect? Has he suddenly jettisoned his intellect? Has he thrown away his logical power and his ability to argue and to reason and to think? Has he suddenly gone soft in the brain? Is this a case of disease? Well, there's a very simple way of answering these questions. You've simply got to read his epistles. And you'll find that the old genius is still there. The magnificent brain is still working even better than ever before. The logical acumen, the insight, the understanding, all the towering genius is here still. And yet the man is changed. Where was the trouble? I say it was never in the intellect. It was in the moral nature. It was in the heart. It was this thing that produces hatred. He was a confirmation, in other words, of what our blessed Lord and Savior says at this point. And, of course, the Apostle Paul puts it himself explicitly in his epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and in verse 7, where he says, The natural mind, the natural man, is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Enmity, you see, is this term. It isn't a question of disagreement. It isn't a question of our gigantic intellects not being quite able to agree with this or that. No, no, your trouble, my dear friend, is not in your mind. It's in your heart. It's you. It's you yourself that are wrong. As I was wrong, as all of us were wrong, were now Christians. 
It's missing the whole point to think that it's a matter of intellect only. Of course, we like to think that, don't we? And we say, of course, I'm, I'm in trouble, you see. I've been born with this great brain. I'm not like a simple man like women and children or those people to whom you can preach your gospel in the heart of Africa and who are ready to believe it. I'm unfortunately a man of brains. I wish I hadn't got it in order that I could be a... Haven't you heard them saying that? What nonsense. What nonsense. That is but the camouflage, that's the pretense. Those are but the outer fortifications you put up. But we're not deluded, we know we've been there ourselves. Your trouble's further back, it's deep within, it's your nature that's wrong. This is the condemnation, that light has come into the world. And men loved darkness, rather than light because their deeds were evil. The intellectual difficulties and arguments we put up are simply put up to cover the moral rot, the running sore of the soul. It isn't an intellectual problem. Well, now then, our Lord puts it here, I say, quite specifically. Me, he says, it hated. Is his language too strong? No, no. The record proves that he was right. Isn't he right about his own brothers at this point? I've already reminded you this evening of the contempt that comes into their words to him. Didn't you notice it? His brethren therefore said unto him, Depart hence, and go unto Judea, that thy disciples also may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. Do you get the note of sarcasm? And sarcasm includes contempt and an element of hatred. It comes out in the very attitude of his brothers to whom he's speaking. But doesn't it come out everywhere in the pages of the four Gospels? Do you hear the Pharisees talking about this fellow? This fellow. This carpenter. Do you hear the, the bitterness and the hatred and the malice and the spleen? Did you notice the mocking? And did you notice how this went on throughout his life? Here is the Son of God speaking words that no man ever spake. Here he is doing miracles such as had never been seen before. Here is a unique person. And what do they do with him? Do they rejoice? No, no. They argue with him. Then they set trap questions in order to catch him and to entangle him in his words. Read the accounts for yourselves. They meet together and they plot and they try to somehow or other make him say something that's going to get him into trouble. That's how they react to him. I read at the end of this eighth chapter, the next chapter of the gospel according to St. John, these words. Then took the up stones to cast at him. Indeed, even before that we read in the fourth chapter of Luke's gospel that there he went back to his hometown of Nazareth and went into the temple as was his custom and the synagogue as was his custom on the Sabbath day. And you remember he got up and spoke and expounded that passage from Isaiah and they were all at first greatly impressed by the gracious words that came over his lips and out of his mouth. But go on to the end of that incident and you'll find this. They were standing on a high place and they did their best to shoulder him down, to throw him down that they might kill him. And he'd just been uttering gracious words. Then took they up stones and cast them at him. What is this but hatred? Me? It hated? But what am I speaking of? 
Finally, they all came together, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the Herodians, the people who were always at enmity amongst themselves. They all came to a great conference and they plotted his death and sent a message to the Roman governor, Pilate. And thus, they brought to pass his death upon the cross. And there he is nailed to the tree Enduring and suffering those cruel agonies. With a thirst that apparently is most terrible. And there he is dying. And look at the crowd and listen to them. Others he saved. Himself he cannot save. If thou be the Christ of God, save thyself. Come down from the cross. And the laughter and the mocking and the jarring hatred. Oh, yes, he knew exactly what he was saying. The world, he says, cannot hate you. But it hateth me. And what he says is, you notice that that is true of all that belong to the world. But I don't hate Christ, says someone. Wait a minute, my friend. Hatred takes many forms. Hatred doesn't always pick up stones. Hatred can work in this way. It just regards with utter disdain and supreme contempt. It doesn't even trouble to look. It turns the other way in its bitter hatred and utter contempt of him. Hatred is not always loud and vociferous. Hatred, I say, can be at its worst when it just doesn't speak. It just looks. And you see it in the eye and the curl of the lip and in the whole demeanor and manner. That, that according to our Lord, is the state and the condition of the whole of mankind by nature with respect to him. And therefore, what you and I have to remember in a very practical way together this evening is this. Anything that poses as Christianity and as Christian teaching, but which is very acceptable to the world, is not Christian. It comes to that, and it is as simple as that. Therefore, if you want to judge a man's teaching or preaching, test it by his associates, by the people he mixes with, by the people with whom he agrees. The world hates Christ and everything that he stands for. It is the ultimate test of Christian truth and of Christian teaching. But that brings me to my third and my last point, which is this. Why does the world hate him? Listen. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. Oh, here is the very heart of the whole subject. Why does men by nature hate the Lord Jesus Christ? And here is the answer. 
It is because we are born with a sinful nature. Our natures are sinful. The natural mind is enmity against God. Why? It is not subject to the law of, the law of God. Why? You, says the apostle to the Ephesians, were enemies and aliens in your minds by wicked works. Why? Why is mankind at enmity against God and against Christ? And the appalling answer is simply this. It is because God is holy and God is light. And we are depraved and we are sinful. It is the only explanation. Why should men instinctively have this hatred of God? Why does the average man delight in denying God? Or in believing anything he reads in a newspaper that seems to indicate that there isn't a God? Why this antipathy to Christ and his teaching? What's the explanation? And there, I say, is the only adequate explanation. We, by nature, love sin. We love the darkness. There are certain things we want to do and like to do and God is holy and God reprimands us and God's against us and God stands between us and the things we want so we hate him. God is good and righteous and holy. God is the author of life. God is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. God is love and yet the world hates him. Why? I say it's his holiness. He seems to be against us. Why? Well, because our sphere is evil, it's dark, it's sinful, it's vile, it's ugly. And we feel that he's different. And therefore, because our natures are perverted and polluted, we are against him. Because in our folly we feel that he is against us. Uh, yes, but that's, the, that's only the first thing. The second thing is this. The world says Christ hates me because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. And here is the trouble. Here was the thing that made them cry away with him, crucify him. He testified that the works of the world are evil. How did he do it? Well, he did it in his life. His pure and his holy life lived in obedience to God. People don't like such a person. They still don't like that. And if you're a Christian, you've probably found that out by now. The people in the office have started calling you a prig. They say, who is he? Who is she? What do they think they are? Look at them. And all you've done is to give up certain sins and wrong and evil practices. You no longer join them in doing those things. You've done nothing else, and yet they hate you. Because your life is now cleaner than it once was. He did it in his life, but he did it specifically in his teaching. What infuriated the Pharisees against our Lord was that his teaching made them feel that, he were, that they were sinners. 
Look at him in the Sermon on the Mount. How devastating it was to them. They said as long as a man doesn't commit the actual act of adultery, he's not guilty of it. Yes, you are, said Christ. If you look at a woman to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart with her. And every one of them had. Do you remember the case of the woman caught in sin and in adultery? He put them in the middle and said, He that is innocent among you, let him cast the first stone. And they all walked out crestfallen. He exposed them in his teaching. He also did it in his works, but he did it supremely in his death. What the world really hates above everything else in the Lord Jesus Christ is his death upon the cross. You go and talk to a man who doesn't believe in him about his blood and about his broken body and about his agony and they don't want to hear it. This theology of blood, they say. They blaspheme against it. They hate it above everything else. His death upon the cross. Why? Well, there above everywhere he is testifying of the world that its works are sinful. It is because he exposes the world that the world hates him. It is because he testifies of it that the works thereof are evil and brings it under condemnation. What does he bring out? He brings out these things. He brings out the element of hypocrisy that is in us all by nature. Every saintly person does that. Have you ever been in the presence of a great saint? Didn't you feel that you were a worm and less? They didn't say anything. They didn't condemn. But their very purity, their honesty, they made us feel we were hypocrites. And our Lord shows these Pharisees and scribes and his own brothers here as sure hypocrites, pretending to be religious. But it was all a matter of outward appearance. This people, he said, honoreth me with their lips. But their heart is far from me. Beware, he says, of the leaven of the Pharisees and scribes, which is hypocrisy. Ye are they, he said to them on another occasion, that justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. The hypocrisy of it all. And then he exposes our evil works. He puts his finger on things that are wrong in our lives and in our actions. Haven't we all known it? Even as we read his words in the New Testament, as we read the Bible, they stand out, they come before us. And should he appear to us and come near to us, we are acutely aware of them, the sinfulness of my actions. He brings them out. But alas, he doesn't stop merely at the evil of our actions. He shows us the evil that is in our hearts. It isn't merely that we do things that were wrong. It is that we desire to, that we enjoy them, that we gloat in them. He shows our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. And we don't like to be told that. But he does something that is still more devastating. He shows the real character of even our best and noblest and highest works and deeds. 
And that is the thing that we feel to be unforgivable in him. Let me complete my quotation of Luke 16, 16. Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, he said, but God seeth your heart, for that which is highly esteemed amongst men is abomination in the sight of God. Highly esteemed amongst men. Name in the newspaper. Great philanthropist. Great sacrifice. Given up his life to minister to the poor or to people in Central Africa. Marvelous. Wonderful. And suddenly he begins to speak and he says it's all abomination in the sight of God. Because you did it for your own glorification, for your own self-satisfaction, in order that you might have a great name, you were ministering to your own pride. It wasn't for God. And though men praise you, God regards it as an utter abomination. You see, it was this that brought Saul of Tarsus to see that all the righteousness and all the religion in which he boasted was but dung and refuse and loss. All our righteousness is but as filthy rags. That's what he says. He exposes it all. In other words, for me to end by summing it up, it's this. He makes the world see its lost condition, its damned condition in the sight of God. He makes us see ourselves as we really are, face to face with God. He says that. I testify that the works thereof are evil. I'm not saying this. It's Christ who says it. The Christ that people say is only love. He speaks like this. He arouses antagonism. Have you ever felt it? Have you known it? If you've ever met him, you must have. For by nature, you're against him. But he finally adds to it all by saying this. That we are so bad that we cannot be improved. So bad that we cannot save ourselves. That we cannot decide to be better and to please God. We can get rid of our past and live a new life. We can't. He says that he has come into this world to seek and to save that which was lost. That we are all so lost and hopeless and damned that it necessitated his leaving the courts of heaven and coming on earth and being made flesh and entering into that virgin's womb and being born and living as a boy and as a carpenter and as a man and preaching Indeed, he says, that there is only one thing that can save us, and that is that he should die for us, that he should be punished on our behalf and bear our sins in his own body on the tree and die our death and be buried in our grave and go down to hell as it were for us. And rise again to justify us. And that's what men find to be unforgivable. I'm not as bad as that, says a man. I may not be a hundred percent saint, but I'm not as bad as that. I'm a good man. I'm a moral man. No, no, says Christ. I must die for you. It's your only hope. You're as lost 
as the vilest prostitute or adulterer. It is because he testifies thus against us and our righteousness and our ability and our self-reliance that we all of us by nature hate him. Me, it hateth. He says it. Very well, let me end by asking a few simple questions. What is your reaction to Jesus Christ? Have you ever disliked him? Have you ever hated him? Have you consciously been aware of this within yourself? Let me tell you that if you haven't, you don't know him. And if you think you believe in him, you're fooling yourself. It's of no value. The natural mind is enmity. Me, it hateth the world. And we all belong to it by nature. Nobody is born a Christian. We've all got this evil, fallen, sinful nature. Do you hate him? As I've told you tonight what he says and what the meaning of his death upon the cross is, do you hate him? I can help you to decide which of the two groups you belong to. Does the world hate you? In chapter 15 of this gospel he says the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have hated me, they will hate you. Yea, says the Apostle Paul in writing to Timothy, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Are you experiencing any of the scorn and the sarcasm and the derision and the persecution of godless sinful men? If you are, you're in Christ and you belong to him. But if you're not, you belong to the world. The world cannot hate you. But it hates Christ and it hates his people. What is your position, I ask again? Do you hate this gospel? Do you feel it's narrow and offensive? Do you wish you'd never heard of it? Do you wish there wasn't a God so that you could live the life you want to live and have your fling and go into it and enjoy it and be ravished in it? Do you hate the whole thing? Are you here tonight perhaps to please a father or a mother or a husband or a wife? Is the whole thing against the grain and do you hate it all? Remember this. To hate Christ and his gospel is to hate God. And to hate God means that you're under his wrath. And if you die under the wrath of God, you will go to hell. And you'll remain there to all eternity. This is no light matter. You are in the hands of God. And if you hate Christ, if you hate his gospel, if you hate his way of life, if you hate his death, you're hating God. And to hate God means you put yourself outside his love and his mercy. And you will endure the agony of eternal remorse. Have you realized that about yourself? Have you realized that you need forgiveness? 
that you need mercy, that you need the compassion of God because you've hated him. Have you realized that what you need and what all men need by nature is a new nature that loves the light and hates the darkness instead of loving the darkness and hating the light. My dear friend, it is my great privilege once more to say just this to you. The Christ whom you have hated in your heart of hearts until this moment, perhaps, has so loved you that he not only came into the world for you, but went to the cross and died for you. Saul of Tarsus hated him. But later he said, the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more being reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Oh, blessed gospel. He died for his enemies. He died for those who hate him and who've hated him malignantly and bitterly as well as quietly and respectably. Here is the message. Though you've hated him, if you see tonight the enormity of your sin and the foulness of your nature, you have but to turn to him and acknowledge it and confess it and ask him to have pity and compassion and he will. Him that cometh unto me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. Though you may have come into this building like Saul of Tarsus, breathing out threatenings and slaughter against him, hating him and hating all he stands for and his death, if you've seen it even in this meeting, hasten to him. Him that cometh unto me, whatever he was, whatever he thought before, I will in no wise Cast out. Here is his love. That though we were enemies, he has loved us and given himself for us. Turn to him and he'll receive you. He'll shower his love upon you. He'll assure you of an abundant pardon. And more wonderful still, he'll give you a new nature. He'll give you a nature that loves him and glories in him and in God. And you'll be amazed and won't be even able to be credit that once you were ever different and that you ever hated him or ever said a word against him. He'll make a new man of you, a new woman. He'll make a new creature of you. You will be born again and receive of his own divine life. Have you seen it? Well, give proof of it. Turn to him. And he will receive you. Amen.